0: Good evening, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Futurati podcast, where we dive into how emerging technologies will impact the world and your bank account. With very few exceptions, almost every human that's ever lived has passed their years within a society. But the term society masks a tremendous amount of complexity. Human social arrangements are famously difficult to understand, predict, and change. But if we want to build a better future, this is precisely what we need to do. Well, tonight, we're joined by possibly the best scholar to help us get a handle on these tasks, Samo Buria. Samo is a sociologist and the founder of Bismarck Analysis, a firm that analyzes institutions from governments to companies. His research work focuses on the causes of societal decay and flourishing any rights writes on history, epistemology, and strategy. If you enjoy this interview, please subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends. And don't forget to check out our website, FuturatiPodcast.com. Samo, thanks so much for coming back on the show.
1: It's good to be here with you.
0: Now, we, uh, we covered this a little last time. Uh, episode 76, I believe, is when you came on the first time. But could you just briefly sort of adumbrate your background and your interests and what's brought you to working on the problems that you're working on today?
1: Yes, uh, I'm the founder of a company called Bismarck Analysis. It is a political and economical uh, risk consulting firm. We mostly work with uh, clients from Silicon Valley. I'm also a research fellow at the Long Now Foundation. Uh, in my background interest for back the last decade, um, sort of all my projects kind of feed into this is an attempt to understand society at its sort of greatest scale, right? Which is one of the reasons why I've also uh very interested in institutions, have done research work on them, uh, on the world's longest lived institutions, but also on the most impactful ones.
0: That is that is fascinating. So I've got lots of questions that I want to ask about your work proper, but could you just briefly give me a definition of a society or a civilization? Those are terms that are bandied about a lot. And I often find that when you take a very common term and start to parse it in terms of the you know, it's what it actually means fundamentally, that's a pretty productive exercise. So how do you define those terms?
1: Yes. Um, you know, I think a civilization is best thought of as an interdependent ecosystem of institutions, right? So much as, you know, a particular forest does not die, if a tree in the forest dies, I don't think a civilization dies just because one of its institutions becomes, you know obsolete or ceases to function or breaks down or something like this. However, there obviously comes a point when enough trees have died that you no longer have a forest, but you have a desert, or perhaps the point where, you know, a temperate forest becomes a jungle or, you know, uh, a tundra. Um, and really these kind of transformations, right? The reason I go with sort of this description of civilization is because I do think there have been multiple different human civilizations that run on different social technologies. So all human societies, fairly similar, but they also sometimes have deep differences that express themselves in economics, in the cultivation of human capital, in the flow of political power. uh, And also, you know, uh, at the end of the day, in, uh, you know, the quality of life, people experience, and so on.
0: I really like this idea of a uh, social technology, and it, it puts me in mind of a technology stack, like a social technology stack, and this isn't in my notes, I'm just kind of riffing as you're talking, is, uh, w- w- do you think it'd be accurate to say that maybe the equivalent of like a virtual machine would be the basic shared cognitive architecture of human beings, that that in some meaningfully, in some meaningful way, it kind of truncates the space of possible cultures?
1: well i think it's a very interesting question as to how different the states of human consciousness can be right Uh, my own background and intuitions were fairly materialist for most of my intellectual history so i would tend to say yes you know probably there is a large sort of there's a shared deep type of awareness but it's good to keep in mind these various contrarian theories um like for example julian james has the (laughs) bicameral mind theory right yes which uh, I assume, given your response, your your audience has already heard of. Right. And in case they haven't heard of it, uh, it's the idea that there was a fundamental shift in cons- consciousness uh, around 1000 BC at the end of the last Bronze Age, where you know people became conscious. And it was almost this sort of, uh, well, this culture, this almost this wild meme that was infectious and fundamentally changed how the brain is wired. I don't think that's quite right, but it is... Uh, fascinatingly hard to really refute that type of theory. And it has some interesting um, but circumstantial evidence to speak in its favor in the cultural shifts we see around 1000 BC.
0: Yeah. I am in a book club where we're reading all the classics of Western civilization. We're actually on the Iliad right now. And Julian Jaynes and the Bicameral Theory came up recently just as an aside, and we're not going to spend tons of time on it, but as an epistemological exercise, it's very fascinating. The, the way he adduces different facts to arrive at that conclusion, he's an expert in ancient languages and archeology. span And he, he looks at the verb tenses and the way that we, they refer to gods and, and ultimately just patches all of that together into the case that it doesn't seem that these people were conscious in the same way that we are. And if, if they were, they were speaking in very unusual ways about the gods that seem to be talking to them inside their own heads. Uh, I've always found that a very interesting theory and it's just something to sort of check yourself against in terms of sanity.
1: I think that's important. Um, the, the, good, the, the sort of good use of contrarian theories is to see where they are surprisingly strong. It's similar to how, you know, in physics, you might use a model of a cow as a sphere in right. a vacuum. You just assume, you know, it's mass. We're just going to model its mass. We're not going to worry too much about these other things. And, uh, you know, we're going to figure out various things about how a cow moves. You know, fun fact, this, this toy example, yes, you can learn some things about the movement, even of a cow with such a vastly simplified and seemingly wrong model. Um, And it's the same with societies and civilizations. And I think that one of the virtues of intellectual curiosity is this openness to gem mining models you ultimately disagree with. And I think this is a discipline um, and an activity that people would benefit from doing much more systematically. This is the real reason why I recommend people read um, their enemies, their political enemies. So if you have strong political views in economics or politics, don't read them to refute them no one really cares about debates no one kind of really changes their minds on a mass scale from debates but you can gem mind them they are going to see some of your blind spots even if they're completely wrong about everything else um and i think this sort of imaginative function when interpreting social events and interpreting personal experience and yes even interpreting data this is what generates the new social hypotheses. This is what is the origin of new theories, right? And this actually, I think, drives a lot of the progress that hopefully we will see in the future and that we've seen so far in the social sciences.
0: Well, let's talk a little bit about your own theoretical advances. And I wanted to start in a place that I'd can't recall you ever having discussed before. Um, and, and that's the idea of an immortal society. So on your website, you say there has never been an immortal human society. I work on figuring out why. And I find that intriguing because while I care about existential risk and I don't want humans to go extinct, it's never occurred to me to approach this issue by thinking about building a single eternal society. Why is that in particular a thing worth studying and why would an, an immortal society even be a worthwhile project?
1: Well, that's a, um, it's a very interesting and deep, question um i'm going to just say that i don't think civilizations hand off all of their knowledge to each other i think vast amounts of it get lost i think there's quite a bit of evidence of this we could go into say the evidence of technological decline in the obvious well-known examples of uh the bronze age collapse or the end of you know the sort of late antiquity of the decline and eventually collapse of the roman empire contrasted to uh, the more technically advanced hellenistic era um, and, you know, these, there are also less well-known examples like the collapse of the mohenjo uh, site Indian civilization and so on. I think all in all, there are about 12 collapses, uh, civilizational collapses in, uh, Eurasia that we could really classify as like local dark ages, right? Now we generally assume our own society is sort of exempt from, you know, this rise and fall pattern. We assume that we have firmly stepped onto an exponential curve that no other civilization has been on. To me, it seems much more likely we stepped onto a particularly steep exponential curve of mass-scale manufacturing and perhaps, you know, also a steep curve of information technology, but ultimately it'll prove to be an S-curve, just as the previous ones were, and the previous curves societies were chasing. Um, These are already, you know, these sort of interesting assumptions, but let's say that you just believe our society our civilization is prone either to stagnation decay or collapse and that the loss of knowledge is possible and that the loss of the ability to support large populations is possible i think these two already give you plenty of motivation to try to have society not die Now, consider you wish to make an intellectual contribution for the benefit of mankind. I think the usual way people think about this is, oh, I prove a math theorem. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, this is going to be, you know, people are going to have this. People and post-humans are going to have this for the next trillion years or whatever. But really, mathematical proofs get forgotten all the time. In fact, you know, recently uh, found evidence that say, you know, Archimedes was much more advanced in proto-calculus than we previously thought. I would not be shocked at all if actually they just had full equivalence to modern calculus i wouldn't be surprised i wouldn't be surprised if there are geometric proofs for example that late hellenistic mathematicians came up with that are more elegant and better than the proofs we have today and so on and so on so even if this is not true even just in our recorded history i think it's sort of kind of the height of hubris to think that uh you know our individual accomplishments can possibly outlast the society we are embedded in. That really is the heart of it. Any, Everyone who's listening to this show, your individual accomplishments are hosted on the society we're living in. If this society goes, your stuff's no longer safe. Your legacy's no longer safe. It still might be a legacy for the next few hundred or thousands of years, and that's wonderful and beautiful. But you know, that's kind of the reason I want this multiplication of human effort to really come into being now for those who strongly believe in wig history and progress already been instantiated it sounds like i'm wishing to start progress but if you're skeptical at all about the inevitability of current progress then i think i think the listener can understand why i find this a motivating thing to pursue.
0: I really like your use of technological metaphors. You do, you do a really good job of that. Like AWS would be Amazon web society, right? Or (laughs) AWSs for web service society or something like that. I I really like that. Yeah. Human accomplishments are hosted on the social substrate. Right. And and if that doesn't persist, then none of the rest of it does too. What, what is the, uh, what's the evidence that Archimedes was further along in calculus than we thought? I'm not aware of this.
1: Well, uh, you can go uh, look about, look look this up online. Uh, recently, we have a whole number of new mathematical texts that have been found through uh, basically x raying medieval manuscripts. It turns out that in the Middle Ages, they would often scrape uh, scrape away the top layer of paper to conserve paper, and then you know write over the same paper all over again. And if today you go through it with an X-ray, you sometimes find these. Uh, remnants of iron-based ink on the thing wow. therefore some new texts are discovered um we can add a link at the end of the show for uh people who would like to read about these finds
0: yeah absolutely there's
1: also some uh interesting efforts to digitally unwind the papyruses and scrolls right. uh found uh, in uh the library in um you know i think near mount vesuvius uh This is a library that was fairly well preserved by the volcanic eruption, because turns out paper is good at insulation, so it didn't actually all go up in flames. However, these scrolls are just, you know, if you unwind them, they immediately crumble, but it's possible again to scan them and with the right technology digitally unroll them, Uh Uh, maybe read what's on them. Herculaneum I think the library of Herculaneum.
0: That's amazing. Yeah, I'd really excited to see what comes out of that. So what would a uh, what makes you think that an immortal society is possible? Is this just something you're hoping for or has your research led you to believe that actually the foundations could be laid such that they persisted indefinitely?
1: Well, I think it's less a matter of foundations and more having sort of um, you know, active active repair of the underlying fabric of societies. I think since we haven't really um had the maturity as a species to really think about the very long term and sort of the commons at the greatest scale, there's actually been surprisingly little energy uh, put into specifically sort of long-term societal continuity or even long-term societal flexibility. Um, I think one of the most basic problems with society is that uh, it's actually very hard to you know, creatively replace institutions that have become obsolete, or have broken up. Many would be reformers are actually just, you know, uh, they're just uh, destroying things. And many would be preservers are sort of, you know, keeping around the dead trees, and not letting the seedlings grow if I continue with the forest metaphor. So in fact, there is a tricky part of both disassembling institutions that no longer work, so that society is not dominated by bureaucratic rules that have become uh, part of extractive systems that uh, you know, are in a way parasitical. If we use like, again, the biological metaphor, if we use a functionalist metaphor, uh, they lock up and defend resources and so on. And just kind of over time, society just becomes very rigid, immobile. You can't do anything new because anything new you can imagine uh, steps on someone's toes right yeah and that uh that sort of institutional crowding uh i think is actually one of the better ways to say understand how something like you know late imperial china uh ended up failing so badly like if you looked at china in the 18th century it was a vastly richer society in many ways still more advanced society than europe if you looked at china at 1900 it was sort of kind of hopeless It had failed to modernize failed to industrialize it wasn't on track to uh literally had to erupt in civil war between before modernization really started, and uh, you know that's that's a nice example of you know almost anything you would need to do uh, to kickstart an industrial revolution uh, would cause trouble with the with the Qin dynasty.
0: Yeah, I find that that really fascinating. I have several yeah. questions about that. First, how you, how you would go about repairing institutions because, as you've mentioned, that's an extremely tricky job. So there's you're often preserving Corpses, essentially, which don't need preservation and aren't really contributing anything. So, I mean, how does one begin to approach that task? Like, if I wanted to preserve uh, institutions of higher learning like universities, I would argue they're not doing a particularly good job now. Anyways, I don't know. I don't know if I want to keep them around. But if I did, how, how would I extract the essence and try to perpetuate that and not just set up an infinite, you know, tower of carbon copies into the future?
1: Right. I mean, first, you have to ask yourself, have you ever seen a working university? (laughs) Right. And if the answer is no, maybe it's already too late. Maybe what you actually have to do is reverse engineer uh, the organization. Right. Um, I do think, by the way, that the academic system and the university system still have much to recommend them, but they are definitely a... um, a core of a socioeconomic crisis that's unfolding, Mm -hmm. right? In America, it's the student debt crisis. Sort of in Europe, we have the infinite credential treadmill. And at the end of the day, most scientific papers are unfortunately not worth reading. Mm -hmm. So the question of how to navigate this vast library of human knowledge that academia has assembled and how to build knowledge, well, maybe those latter two questions are actually a little bit neglected. I would even argue that a failure mode of contemporary academia is sort of constantly reflecting on the literature. The literature reflects on itself, producing even more literature, like a, you know, library of Babel in the Borges sense. Um, But uh, if if one were to try to recapture that function, I think, uh, you know, for the case of universities, let's say, you could look at what was the original intent behind tenure. The original be- intent behind tenure was that um, work could proceed that did not need consensus, that uh, people would be freed from the publish or perish type dynamic. And that, you know, there would be space for both intellectual diversity and for long-term intellectual projects uh, for, you know, scientists, for thinkers who had proven themselves through a long track record. Today, however, the tenured positions are so competed over that we see the victory of sharp elbows over sharp minds. Almost anyone that can make tenure today has already been selected for what, like four sigma sigma and conformity or something like that. They're never going to use tenure anything interesting. So okay, having looked at the original purpose of tenure, having looked at it now, you see the delta between the intent and the reality, and maybe we start brainstorming of how do we pick the 20 smartest people on the internet and give them tenure at Oxford University. Maybe that's worth funding a whole new college for. And maybe those guys or girls, you know, <laughs> colloquially guys, right. right, with tenure, uh maybe they end up being uh you know, sort of the missing eccentric professors that everyone pretends to be, but universities seem to have far fewer of today than they used to.
0: Who, who would be on your list just uh, just for fun? Who would be on your list? I'll nominate you because you won't want to nominate yourself. So I'll nominate you for the spot number one. Who are the other nine? Well, as many as you can come up with. It doesn't have to be 19.
1: <laughs> well, OK, I don't want to I don't want to talk about this too long, but uh, I still do think that, you know, someone should just give Gwern a Ph.D. and a professorial position. And uh, yeah. there should be a journal of Gorn studies. If people uh, don't know of Gorn brandon go to, you know, a uh, Very polymath individual, very wide-ranging intellectual interests. Very clear why a classic academic career is not a good fit, even for that brilliant mind. Um, you know, there are other interesting people. I sort of feel like Razib Khan has done enough thinking on human genetics. Yeah. Not been afraid of controversial conclusions, but has also not been, you know, uh, chained to any ideology. I think you know he deserves uh, funding to just think whatever thoughts he wants about human history and genetics and their fruitful overlap. There are many times when the two can have a fruitful overlap. unsurprisingly, modern population genetic structure can reveal the ancient movements of people and he's one of the rare writers and thinkers out there who is familiar both with the genetics data and with human history. Um, and then if I if I continue thinking, um, if I continue thinking, um, no, I think I'm just going to finish the list with, with Razib and Gwern. I think that's good for now.
0: A rare stump of, of Samuel Wudia. Um, yeah, I don't know. Eliezer Yudkowsky, maybe, um, Andrew Sandberg. Sure. He's, you know, uh, just incredibly smart. Um, yeah. I, 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 I thought he already had an academic position somehow. Maybe I'm may, just I We should give him another one though. Are
1: you- <laughs> sure. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Like a lot of, you know, a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of the people, um a lot of people online.
0: Yeah. No no shortage of, really, of smart really, smart people. people on the internet. Um so I, I realize that this is a hopeless kind of question, but do you have any preliminary thoughts on what an immortal society might look like? And in particular the castes it might have that we don't currently have, <laughs> right? So it just just people who repair institutions, right? Nobody really does a good job of that now, or there would have been an immortal society already, or one that lasted longer and didn't decay as quickly. So what are the jobs that you think people might be doing there?
1: Well, it's a very interesting question as to whether uh, real and effective social engineering uh, can ever actually be just a class of people. it would be very interesting if that's the case, that it can be. Uh, It's not immediately obvious to me that it can, because uh, unsurprisingly, you know, if you had a specialty of social engineering, this ends up being like a ridiculously powerful minority. And then you immediately get involved in all of the normal power dynamics of faction versus faction. Some of the longest lived organizations are often the ones that are removed from political fights, right? Uh, You know, the monks of... Mount Athos have in their, you know, remote little mountain peninsula been sort of untroubled by world events for a good seven or 800 years, precisely because it's kind of irrelevant to everyone else, what they do, right? right? So they persist. Um, You can have obviously counterexamples, right? Oxford, the University of Oxford that we've already mentioned is one of the oldest organizations in the world. It's sort of, uh, you know, its rise predates the rise and fall of Aztec civilization. It's really old, like a thousand years continuity. That's pretty good. Um, There are other universities on uh, the continent that have like a similarly long pedigree. And of course they've evolved massively through this entire history. I would perhaps think of it more than classes of people as sort of institutions, right? I think that to a very large degree, uh, we come to adapt to our immediate social environment and we come to make use of the social technologies that exist around us, right? The difference between, an, uh, you know, a merchant and a pirate might be the incentives of the environment, right? The incentives of the seas of the 17th century. Sure. And even today, there are many, many people who, say, uh, find ways to exert themselves and to live out their values in ways that are very different than what they would have chosen again a few hundred years ago or in a very different society, hypothetically. So... I think which social technology should we introduce? I think the sort of best answer here, uh, in my opinion, is something you know. It's something that would be focused on the study and engineering of systems of knowledge, with an awareness that knowledge sort of lives in human heads, right? It doesn't necessarily live in books. Kind of doesn't matter if no one reads the books. It especially doesn't matter if the books are lost. Uh, for something to be a living tradition of knowledge, something that's intellectually generative, there have to be uh, people working on it. And I think that there's sort of a missing field in the study of how exactly does knowledge and information travel in a human organization and sort of, you know, this kind of almost research of research. Uh, there are a few interesting areas that touch on this. There's obviously kind of uh, the philosophy of science. The good reasons to be skeptical of it there's the history of science again useful to be skeptical of it and uh then there is also the much less well-studied question of tacit knowledge mm-hmm. and tacit knowledge transmission because i note scientific method is not the only way in which we accumulate knowledge and in fact it's not how most practical knowledge gets transmitted in society a lot of it is unstated implicit rather than explicit
0: and uh, formalized well, that's a very compelling research direction for some enterprising scholar out there. Maybe they can uh, they can draw straws for the twenty positions that are that are still available. Um, so let's talk a little bit a little bit about great founder theory. Could you just briefly summarize the the basic tenets of this idea?
1: Well, great founder theory is. Um one of the many theories that proposes that human agency can have an impact on history. It seems kind of obvious that it does, but uh, it's a surprisingly rare position, right? It tries to explain in this sort of broad strokes what it is that kind of drives human civilization along its course. And to me, it seems that the most impactful thing that people can do is introduce new social technologies to their society. Social technologies can be instantiated in an institution. They can be copied, they can be imitated, they can be built on. It's not enough to describe a social technology. You just kind of always have to build a prototype. Usually many written descriptions of utopia have yet to result in utopia for a reason. Uh, It's the difference between building a working prototype and having a blueprint for something that maybe could be a working prototype one day. You know, Da Vinci's glider versus the Wright brothers biplane. Um, That might be a good comparison. And I think that sort of the living practice of social technology often escapes what we know about it, right? Many things, you know, nothing in society is obliged to work the way it says it works. Uh, And the most basic example of this is uh, uh, governments where, in general, all governments claim they are benevolent, usually on different bases, you know, mandate of heaven, the will of the people, uh, and all of that. But it seems very obvious that some of them are much less benevolent than others. But every sort of government's own official story about itself will be very, you know, benevolent, very positive. So governments can lie about how they actually work. Um, you know, if uh, there's like, you know, atheists in the audience, they're not gonna be surprised if I say that organized religions can lie about how they actually work and how they operate and how they socially reproduce themselves. But then we can go further and you know, almost every every element in society we can think of can, to some extent, escape what we explicitly know about it. Like, what's the purpose of art, really? The reason that's (laughs) both a common question and one you can always ask again and again and again is because I think we just don't have the answer, yet all human societies have art embedded in them. right? And, you know, maybe there's no function to it, which is interesting claim in itself, and good luck substantiating that claim. Right. Um, but I but I think the best answer is we just don't know. Now, having said all of this, again, the distinction between great founder theory and great man theory is that, you know, if there's a successful general, that's fine. I'm sure they're worth study. They're worth maybe thinking about emulating. I want to know about the the general only if they reformed the command structure of their military if they changed how the general staff operated if they redesigned uh the training regiment of the soldiers in a way again that persists for decades or centuries or for example the difference between you know a good jurist or someone who could we could justly call a lawgiver right someone that does deep legal reforms to society and i note legal systems are also these bundles of social technology that can outlast any particular government by many centuries even today in continental europe we in fact have a lot of civil law based on ancient roman law and in the united states uh common laws roots in fact go back all the way to anglo-saxon england right right i think there's even references uh to the king's peace and things like this uh these various obscure legacies of where the old cold, old codes of law were. Um, kind of fossil. We can say kind of a fossil, yeah. Or, uh, you know, uh, uh, an unused part of the human body, right? Um, small intestine or something like that. The last few vertebrae that used to be uh, a tail, but now aren't a tail anymore. Vestigial organ, I think is the term. Yeah, yeah. Um, or possibly, you know, it's quite a functioning organ and you actually, Need all of this legal stuff to make your society work, right? We shouldn't underestimate what an interesting and unique society the United States has proven to be. Uh, it ends up being somewhat richer than almost any other part of the world, including the so called developed world. Um, you know, I think uh, the society has deep flaws, but at times I wonder whether we should actually have a term for the zeroth world. It's sort of like the United States is the zeroth world, then there's the first world, <laughs> then there's the second, and then there's the third. Um, you know the 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 reality just is that North Americans tend to be richer than even the richer European countries. Yeah. Um, but to take take this like uh, a step back to really concretize it, what would make then a great founder? It's not every sort of small reformer. I think it's kind of the the type of person that has induced as long reaching changes to their society that by the time they're done propagating, we can kind of justly call this a new civilization. And to give two historical examples, I think uh, Confucius in China is a fairly good example. His philosophy of social reform, you know, it actually comes a little bit close to the class of people you called for, Right. right? The ideal Confucian scholar is supposed to understand the human soul through poetry, is supposed to understand rituals, and is supposed to, you know, be useful at court. And over time, as the court is transformed and the imperial administration is transformed, so is society. And honestly, the Confucians proved their own social theory. For how many political or religious movements can you say that it kind of worked the way it said it would work? You might still, you know, we might still not quite believe that a Confucian bureaucratic imperial feudal society, that that's like the best human society can be. But it's hard to deny. That the sort of Confucian bureaucratic society that we see in China ended up being very different than, say, uh, feudal Japan or feudal Europe. So even modulo technological levels and so on, and different military needs, um, and they have Confucian thought and Confucian values have served as the basis of the rebirth of Chinese civilization more than once. Right? They've returned to these values sometimes with centuries in between. Right. So that's one example, and uh, the other example is, I think, Charlemagne um, in yes, Europe.
0: Yes, the Not Carolingian because, Renaissance, right?
1: Right, exactly. He reintroduced the study of Latin when it has sort of fallen out of use. He, uh, the standardization of writing happens once more in his empire. He also affects the transition from essentially a tribalistic society to a feudal society, right? You have these interesting practices where he tries to end all of these constant quarrels between what would become the nobility. And uh, really, so many fundamentals of what we think of as medieval feudal society are just innovations in the Frankish empire, that the Frankish empire then spreads to places like Denmark or Bavaria, or is imitated in uh, Britain, right? Even the Norman invasion, can best be thought of as william the conqueror a few centuries after charlemagne bringing the feudal package as it developed in uh you know the frankish empire which had by then started to become france into britain right these efforts like the doomsday book mm-hmm. right? right these are efforts of someone coming from the outside and reforming a system and you know the feudal system for all its flaws did in fact develop into what we think of as Western civilization into early modernity, right? It was overcome, but the fact that sort of feudalism was overcome in this almost Marxian way still shows what a big core it was. I mean, up until 1914, you could say that international peace rested on the foundations Charlemagne set up.
0: Yeah, we, we could do an entire episode just on Charlemagne and uh, the Merovingians and the Carolingian Renaissance. I'd Unfortunately we just don't have time for it today but I would love to maybe circle back around that around to that at some point um, So it, it sounds to me like what you're saying is you know great founders are distinguished from just great people generically because they create institutions which, which yes. survive long beyond their, their demise. And I share your belief that institutions are enormously important social structures, and changing or replacing them is often the most consequential thing a person can do. But this seems really difficult. And given that we appear to be in another turning, in a, a period of time in which decaying institutions are no longer functioning correctly and are right for disruption, uh, how can a person best strategically place themselves to create uh, new institutions, bearing in mind that we're not all, all going to be Charlemagne or Napoleon or Alexander the Great? It's nevertheless surely true that if we understand this dynamic, we can we can maneuver into a position where we can push the levers a little bit to better out to better influence the future.
1: I think one of the most important things we can do is uh, create intentionally space for talented people to flourish. I think the reclamation of human talent is very important in the current historic period, um, because I actually suspect that you know and i've had this back and forth debate I say had conversations. uh, I think with Tyler Cowen where he disagrees and he actually thinks universities are right now actually quite good at spotting human talent. But my intuition would be, again, and I feel I see this anecdotally, it's an interesting question of how we could show this or disprove this with data, uh, that there's a lot of human talent left on the table that is uh, underutilized, underemployed, that is uh, time is wasted, right? One of the most interesting things um, I sort of have to ask myself is, uh, you know, let's say you doubled the number of extremely talented people in the United States today, How many could society actually productively absorb into its organizations? How much would it actually say change the composition of the Ivy League universities or the management of the Fortune 500 companies or the, you know, let's say the the startup funding scene might actually be the one that is most transformed by this. And usually people would say this is evidence that the startup model is just generally superior for utilizing human talent. But, you know, I wonder, there was a time when the u.s government was not was not was not bad at all at absorbing human talent and applying it to various problems right so i think the pipes of society are a little bit clogged which means that uh talented people are wasting away time in career tracks that really someone should jailbreak them out of a career track is climbing someone else's ladder it's wasting your time in competition it is not actually pursuing the most singular Talented and excellent thing you can do. Now, people um, are not perhaps always the best judges of their own talent. But <laughs> if you believe yourself to be able to recognize talent in others, I warmly encourage that. Um, it also, at least, you know, it makes for good social relations. So it's one of those nice pieces of advice that I think is just good for people, even if it uh, ends up not succeeding in its gambit.
0: That's a very interesting reply. And just based on my own priors and my approach to the world, my first thought is that that's largely a philosophical issue. First of all, we need to do better at encouraging immigration and making it easier in the United States, but also that we need to make more people aware of the possibility of founding their own company or taking an entirely different approach. And there's several different ways you could try to do that to highlight independent scholars, for example,
1: or or scholarships again, that would uh, pick out recognize and fund people like 18, 19, 20 year old kids uh, that no normal institution would bet on. I think that's that's another one that's underrated.
0: It sounds like you're describing a Teal Fellowship. It's like a a Buria Fellowship.
1: Well, you know, um, I think the Teal Fellowship was one of the most interesting social experiments of the last two decades.
0: How do you feel it's turned out? I haven't really tracked it.
1: I think it's, um, you know, it's uh, succeeded far beyond what its critics would say but I suspect has succeeded below um, Mr. Teal's expectations.
0: Interesting. So was that just a matter of who he placed his bets on or were there important social structures that were missing that would have facilitated its its um, success?
1: Um, you know, I would say that having not looked at that, you know, I, I know kind of like 10 Teal fellows or something like this. Right. They all actually always strike me as a somewhat more interesting person. Um, than I'm used to, especially in the Bay Area. Um, I think that I think that it's quite difficult to bet on the right people. I think it would be somewhat better if the credential over time and it might still be this, right? If over time it became more prestigious because then it becomes a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Where I think this often happens in the course of what's essentially the evolution of an award. First, it's uh, you know, completely unknown then it's the synonym for excellence. Right. And much later, everyone has tried and striven to, to grab this synonym of excellence. And in the process, they've devalued it. You could almost think of it as a as a Goodhart's law of prestige, right? So, you know, Goodhart's law is, you know, when an excellent measure of a social phenomena becomes a target of policy, it ceases to be a good measure. Right. Well, I think that there's like a golden period right before sort of, maximum desirability, that these sort of social recognitions help accelerate the trajectories of talented people.
0: So maybe there needs to be like a clandestine teal fellowship that nobody really knows about. And then you're just sort of selected at 19 or 20 and inducted into this like arcane fellowship that tries to tackle big problems. Uh, I feel like they, there have been movies about this, but it's, it sounds like a fun thing to try to try to get off the ground
1: mean, Maybe. I'm skeptical of secret su- succession, however. <laughs> if you have a quiet conspiracy, I want to see the mechanism by which the quiet conspiracy survives more than one generation. My opinion generally is, if you can't do it in public, it dies
0: with you. Yeah, I I think that's totally fair. What do you make of a phenomenon like Bitcoin, whose founder famously disappeared shortly after its introduction, um, has never reappeared and is not in any meaningful way stewarding the development of Bitcoin adjacent institutions? There are plenty of people, including on this show, who have argued that Satoshi Nakamoto's disappearance has actually been a huge boon for the Bitcoin project, which would seem to at least be an interesting edge case for your theory.
1: I think that it's uh, quite possible that Satoshi was the exceptional individual that uh, wrote the code of the future. Uh, I think Bitcoin is kind of interesting because it's a package of mostly digital technology. It's not quite social technology, though I would argue the philosophy of Bitcoin kind of is right. Most of the justification of the Bitcoin maximalists is just clearly a set of assumptions and beliefs about society. So. I think that currency is one of these things also that can last for a very long time. Uh, people were still trading coins minted in the Roman Empire in 18th century markets, right? Um, you know, those coins made their way to China, which, you know, never was in direct contact with the Roman Empire and so on. Uh, They've even been Roman coins, by the way, found in uh, the Caribbean. So, uh, you know, I don't think this quite means that the Romans sailed there. But I do think that means that you know the sort of networks of trade, maybe through the Vikings or whatever, coins changing hands and changing hands and changing hands again. I think I think that's a credible hypothesis, right? I'm not going to commit to it, but I think that's a credible hypothesis to explain those finds, right? Um, and having said that, I could easily imagine Bitcoin lasting for a thousand years, like a crazy thought. Right. But you know, it's lasted for twenty years now. I mean, not twenty years. What was it? Two thousand nine eight. Yeah. Do you remember the year?
0: 2000 uh, the the paper was published, I want to say
1: early 2009. Two, early 2009. Well, I remember I remember hearing about it 2011 or so. Um so let's say 15 years or something, 13 years. Um let's see where it is. at It's 100th birthday. Um you know, if this ends up being sort of a the kind of asset class that people think it is, I think he might actually justify the title of a great founder. There's also the fun question of whether that's just a, a working name, an artistic name of a group of people. So we're back to the Homeric question in a way, right? Homer is also known, it's not clear if he if it was multiple authors, if it was just written down stuff or if there actually ever was a blind poet.
0: Yeah. there. Well, there are several mysteries like that. P- people debate whether or not Aristotle wrote all the books that are attributed to Aristotle. Some of it looks like it might have been class notes from students that were compiled and published under his name after his death, that kind of thing. We, uh, we interviewed a guy. It, it hasn't gone live yet. Uh, Jeremy Clark. He's at, uh, I want to say, a uni- uh, university in Ontario. He says that he has actually been asked that question under conditions that he can't disclose because of NDAs, but it's his belief that it's one person. And that's based on, again, some evidence he can't share, but including things like just looking at the, the consistency of the, the jargon and little stylistic ticks that survive for, for many, many years and appear in all kinds of Nakamoto's correspondences. It just, it seems like it would be a remarkable feat of coordination for five people to keep that up. Uh, Doesn't prove anything one way or another, but that was at least his belief. Um, how do you feel about technology like Bitcoin and its potential impact on social evolution? so you said it 's not quite a social technology i uh, i, I don 't know I think money's an interesting case I think you might be able to argue that it is a social technology, and Bitcoin being sort of the first digital iteration of that uh, it, it might qualify as again just sort of a boundary case uh, of, of a social technology but how do you feel about the role of technologies like Bitcoin in immortal societies? Would it be a source of stabilization as a great many people would argue, or is there just no reasonable way to tell for sure?
1: I think that when it comes to social technology, the conceptualization starts to get a little bit uh, frayed at the edges. Once we cross the sort of barrier where everything in society becomes information. Yeah. Right. Like if you, the more you go through this barrier, the more sort of the distinction between social and material technologies conceptually vanishes. And I would say at the end of the day that perhaps it was always just a conceptual distinction, right? That packages of material technology obviously travel together with social technologies, right? Like the factory implies a certain kind of human organization that it might be very difficult to achieve the economies of scale needed for particular types of material technology otherwise. Right. Um, You know, maybe to make a car, you need to have a factory floor. To have a factory floor, you uh, need to have a supervisor and you need to have teams of workers. And lo and behold, right, you're, you're introducing a whole bunch of assumptions of how that happens and why that's happening. Right. Um, and, and fam- the famously,
0: these organizations have not often survived basic changes in, in social structure. It's, I mean the, so, right. so like like just literally not-
1: changing a, man, a manager can wreck a company. and that's <laughs> that should be surprising to us. No, really. Right, it right, should be right. surprising because the normal story is that we're relatively interchangeable on the labor market. Uh, yet when it comes to this type of organization, um, often this change of leadership, alters the company completely or nfps Um, non-fungible people non-fungible people (laughs) um you know maybe that's actually a reason to be hopeful right because uh actually the more unique people are the more in theory they can find something that they are uniquely good at right or something that they're uniquely good on this sort of uh the, the curves of cost and benefit um i think that I think basically that Bitcoin, if its thesis was correct, it would over time drive through society and render a whole bunch of previously existing social technologies obsolete. Some of them might be outcompeted. Some of them might find new uses where they kind of reposition themselves to do something else, right? If you think about the British monarchy, how often has the British monarchy repositioned itself in terms of what it's doing? Like the difference between Running a country as a CEO, and what Queen Elizabeth II does, is fairly obvious. Right? Can you imagine a world where the Fed is still around, but uh, you know it can't really do that much anymore with interest rates or something like that, or uh, where it's you know say we're all stuck on deflating money? One of the funnest uh, ideas I had once, which which I used to troll my my Bitcoin loving friends, and you know <laughs> I, I own some Bitcoin, I just don't put my hopes for the future in it. I was like, you know, it's possible. You're completely right. And that Keynes is also right. And that actually what you're doing is condemning the world for, uh, to poverty uh, because Bitcoin will drive all <laughs> other money out of use and destroy our ability to use stimulus.
0: <laughs> I imagine that pissed, uh, pissed the Bitcoin maxis off a little bit.
1: I mean, it's good to anger people by pointing <laughs> out how, you know, the, the assumptions that people come in with, right, it can be partially correct and partially very
0: wrong. Right, right. Uh, that's absolutely fascinating. And I wanted to ask you some questions about social technology and morality. So in view of all this, I, uh, uh, I was reading through some of your Twitter exchanges and back in April you said that people were curious about your opinion of the effective altruism movement and your response was you consider it interesting but you mostly track thinking about civil- civilizational scale issues. And Ben Landau-Taylor who we love and who's been on the show chimed in saying effective altruism's strength is more philosophy. Effective altruism's weakness is trying to solve institutional problems with morality and philosophy. To which you replied yes. Now I know I shouldn't read too much into a Twitter exchange like this but that struck me as ignoring an important dynamic about civilizational scale issues. I view ideas about morality and philosophy as being akin to the operating system of a society. It's not the only thing that's going on, but it's one of the deepest layers in the social technology stack and therefore one of the biggest levers you can pull in changing a society's direction. Would you disagree with that or have I misconstrued the issue?
1: Well, I would say that morality is an important question in terms of interpersonal behavior, but also how we say justified code of laws and how the legitimacy of institutions is justified and all of that sure morality is part of how we think about social technology but i think what was implicit in ben's critique and what i consider myself to be agreeing with is that i don't think effective altruism actually says that much about how we should run society yeah and i don't think it actually says that much about how individuals should treat each other on a day-to-day level what is an ea workplace it's unclear whatever is effective. Well, that seems pretty tautological, doesn't it? (laughs) At best, this amounts to something like a Protestant work ethic, a little bit secularized, but I don't think it goes much further than that. There can be some arguments that effective altruist moral foundations are a better way to steward and deploy nonprofit money. But if that is the case, I want to endorse loudly Tyler Cowen's emergent ventures, as the very, very best, even on effective altruist criteria. This actually is not just a low overhead organization, but one where a generalist freed from the rigorous problems of committees and patronage networks is bestowing money in a way that I think will prove over time with the track record to be an extremely good way to run uh, an extremely good way to improve the world, a higher ROI than almost anything I can think of uh, that's been funded by more conventional uh organizations, right? Because again, what is an effective altruist organization? I honestly think it's kind of run the same way a normal foundation is. And my sociological prediction is that in about 20 to 30 years, the typical effective altruist foundation and the typical normal large democratic party aligned philanthropic foundation are basically going to be the same thing and are basically gonna be like not too dissimilar from when they are today. In other words, I think none of the organizational problems of a foundation and none of the political economy problems of the role of a foundation in society have actually been addressed by EA. Now what EA has done and I think has done very well has allowed a moral reason, a moral core for investment into a few narrow fields such as ai safety and maybe to some extent to like like meat replacement um i don't think that they have say a unique advantage when it comes to like you know if i had to bet on an ea org or on the bill and melinda gates foundation in their attempts to use normal philanthropic structures to you know alleviate poverty in africa i think i would still bet on the bill and melinda gates foundation right that's just But these are just off the hip. This is me shooting off the hip. Um, I think lots of people are doing extremely good work in that movement. I I think highly of it. I just don't think myself of it.
0: Okay, so it's not so much an indictment of morality or the power of morality to steer the course of a society. It's more just this particular morality doesn't really have a unique advantage in solving the sorts of problems that you like to think about. And those will persist under a variety of different moral codes that need to be thought of distinctly from that.
1: to to give it one thing i think it does a fairly good job of talking about the urgency of artificial intelligence Mm -hmm. as a risk to humanity if the assumptions about the technology are correct and that by the way is like you know that's not trivial that might be very important um but that's why i'm sort of like well you know it's not my i'm not a software engineer i don't work in artificial intelligence so you know. right.
0: Yeah. Well, there's some very interesting things happening. It turns out that a basic transformer architecture can generalize to a wide variety of tasks which, for which it was not trained. And so there, there's all this sort of fluttering going on about whether or not this is the first AGI, if it's a, like an uh, infrahuman AGI, and if, if you know, this is the sort of thing that could be turned to writing code, you might get recursive self-improvement. So. Uh, there, there's a lot going on there, but I I don't want to spend too much time on that just for the record. Uh, I think the last concept that I want to talk about in the time we have remaining is live players. So this is an idea you've developed, which has gained some prominence and you define a live player as a person or tightly coordinated group of people that is able to do things they have not done before. Since I'm at a startup in the crypto asset space, pretty much everyone I work with is doing things they've never done before. And we spend a lot of time reflecting on this fact. So what advice do you have for a person that wants to be a better live player?
1: Well, do you do them well?
0: <laughs> that remains think, to be seen. Uh, trying to
1: do, trying to do new things, right, <laughs> and actually succeeding, right, in this kind of um, this process that can be either first principles analysis driven, or it can be driven by really sort of deep uh, implicit intuition, where you know, sort of your you're not quite explicit part of the mind has a good enough model of the environment that it improvises. I think it's uh it's rather stark how much of our lives are spent in imitation. Like you can you know if you doubt it literally write down everything you do in a day and then at the end of the day look at this list and no matter how closely you record everything you realize that almost everything not only have you done but you learned from other people to do right so uh this like sort of moment of creation of novel adaptation of an agentic grab of uh, destiny and your environment these moments are precious but i think they're rare And the live player is the one that uh, knows how to instantiate them over and over and over again Um, and this is why i think you see some of these really exceptional people that can jump industries with ease jump careers with ease uh, and will be highly accomplished in more than one field to give a playful example uh, you know i'm going to note that uh you know arnold schwarzenegger Uh, won a bodybuilding competition because he sort of deserted his military unit and having won the bodybuilding competition convinced uh, the commander of the unit to not be punished because this is good PR for the unit. (laughs) And then becoming a bodybuilder and a quite successful one at that, he realized that there was still enough notoriety to be gained by uh, smoking weed on camera in a documentary uh, to get his launch into the movie industry, and having become a successful actor that everyone disparaged as being a mere Hulk, a bodybuilder, Arnold Schwarzenegger is not an actor. He intuited and realized that he could be a good politician. And of course, you know, once he became the governor of California, then the objection was, he's not a real politician; he's just an actor. Right
0: now, I'm I'm curious about applying that. So. In the case of somebody like Dwayne Johnson, who's followed an obviously kind of similar trajectory, would that he still count as a live player? Because he saw that it could be done. He had a model, but he still had to figure every bit of that out himself. It's not like Arnold was there coaching him the whole time. Like he saw somebody else do it, then had to figure it out himself. It seemed like I think he'd be a live player, but I'm curious as to to get your thoughts.
1: I think reverse engineering, what someone else is doing, is a very important life skill. But I would claim it is uh distinct from the sort of live player concept Uh, I'm talking about. Sorry, Dwayne. So he, he might yet see, he might yet do unique things, but uh for now he's following a script, a new script, a high quality script. And let me emphasize the most successful people in society often they do follow a high quality script, right?
0: So how new do you have to be? Because even somebody like Elon Musk, you could argue, well, he made one fortune and then invested it in other you know, promising new ventures and then turned that into a bigger fortune. Like, I think at a certain level of abstraction, you can claim that almost anything counts as aping someone else. So, I mean, Elon Musk would seem to be a live player if anyone is. But I, I think that I could take your analysis of the rock and apply it to him in a way that would make him not a live player. So maybe I don't have as good. It's, a grasp it's, it's
1: okay. It's okay to be a fan of the rock. It's okay. I just, <laughs> uh, you know, I forgive you. Um, but, but, uh, you know, again, I want to emphasize there are lots lots of people who are exceptional, who are very important to society who I don't think fit the live player dynamic. And, you know, I think the answer unfortunately is like very qualitative. I do think everyone kind of knows it when they see it which is why, you know, yes, Elon Musk is a live player and uh, now everyone knows it, but not everyone knew it in sort of 2014, 2013, and not just because they didn't have the concept, but because they didn't see how well he did it, right? So sure, there might be selection effects, right? You could argue that maybe there are a hundred could be Elon Musk's who just got unlucky on their roll of the dice, but I frankly don't believe it. And I don't think most of the critics believe it either. I think we would see far more examples and evidence of failed Elon Musk's if that were the case.
0: Yeah. Even if you don't succeed in building a skyscraper, like the rubble forms a big pile that's visible, right?
1: Well, look, look, and if you try to build seven companies and you succeed at three, well, you'd still be a pretty notable entrepreneur, you know? Right, right.
0: Okay. Well, do you have anything else that you want to leave us with in these last five minutes?
1: I think I want to encourage uh, everyone to pursue more agency in the creation of social reality. I think I want everyone to understand that, especially if you feel that atomization, right, and that society is kind of like a little bit alienating, it's very important to realize that it it might just be your environment is socially deficient. I think local organizing everything from like a basic book club to any sort of community stuff will be amply rewarded much more than you would naively think, including in career opportunities and so on. And I feel, um, in our society overall, we've come to rely on truly massively super scaled systems for our social needs. And some of these systems are, you know, deficient. Some of these systems are breaking down. And with this comes the depletion of social capital. So go out there, build more social capital. It has positive externalities.
0: I love it, Samo. Thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me on the show.
0: This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.